0: Welcome to episode 89 of the Amanda Wagner podcast, the place for fiercely ambitious entrepreneurs and leaders who want to get off the sidelines, build a legacy, and claim their spotlight. In this episode, we talk to the absolutely fabulous Shannon Lee Simmons about her latest book, No Regret Decisions. We examine what makes a no-regret decision different than a regular old decision, especially during times of crisis. We consider the role that crisis plays in our decision-making in dig into some of the tools that Shannon uses with her clients to help them make big life decisions that get them to a place of hope and confidence and eliminate 3am guilt. I'm Amanda Wagner, speaker, business strategist, and professional hype woman. And I'm Liz Pittman, a digital communications specialist. The Amanda Wagner Podcast is the place for ambitious entrepreneurs and leaders Who are tired of looking at others and saying why are they doing that and i'm not and are ready instead to claim their own spotlight on this podcast we talk about the challenges and delights of being highly ambitious and how even though we're impatient and at times anxious we can be intentional and make strategic decisions about how to get more of what we want in a noisy world one of my greatest joys is getting to talk to people that i admire whose work I've followed, and whose books I've read, and who I've shamelessly fangirled over. And I could not be happier to have Shannon Lee Simmons here with us today on the podcast. She is the founder of the New School of Finance, a personal finance expert with all of the credentials, a life coach, an author, a speaker. And let me just throw in a big thank you to my pal Dallas for first introducing me to the magic of Shannon in 2017. Shannon, welcome. Welcome.
1: I'm so, so, so happy to be here.
0: I told you that we would have an hour where I just fawn over you and tell you how amazing you are and flatter you. So so I want to first say that your book, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a finance book or a decision-making book. And it was this beautiful mix of thoughtful ideas, a step-by-step playbook, and case studies that really illustrate... Not only how your brain works and how your process works, but how you can help people get from crisis and fear and terror to hope and confidence and sleeping at 3 a.m. So before I dig into some of my specific questions about the book, I want to tell you the two phrases that I keep coming back to in my mind after reading your book as well as listening to it. First is, regret robs you of confidence and make the decision with your eyes open. Talk to me about those two phrases. They're just so incredibly powerful, and I can't be the first person to say that.
1: No, uh, it's actually the reason I wrote the book, the first one. Um, Both, really, but regret uh, robs you of your confidence is the motivating factor that uh, made me pitch this book and want to write it in the first place. So I've been sitting on the front lines of financial planning for like 15 years. You see some shit, you know, you see some life unfold before your eyes and, and what is, I, I couldn't have written this book like five years ago, um, even it's been really interesting for me to watch my clients have life, throw them lemons as it, as it will inevitably for all of us. And then really watch the people who, you know, even if things didn't work out the way that they thought it would. So like life handed lemons, they made decisions, it didn't work out. Those are the people I'm talking to. Um, the ones who look back and are, are, are like, that's my fault. I did that. I regret it and it was me and I did it, have have a real anxiety about the future because, and that's that confidence, because they are like, life threw me a curveball and I didn't handle it. So what happens if life throws me another one? So they have this constant state of anxiety that bad things are going to happen to them because they don't trust or have the confidence that they're going to be able to handle their shit when, like, life throws you a curveball versus the people who have gone through similar sort of, like, life is – throwing you upside down, you make decisions, it didn't work out. Because of course, if it works out, we're all looking back being like, I'm so smart. But let's say it didn't work out. Life doesn't look the way you want it to. And they look back and say, that was a good decision, but a bad outcome. Those people are not as worried, anxious about the future as the ones who look back with regret. And that is something I noticed again, and again, and again, the looking back and regretting is the one thing that you can't look forward into the future hopeful because you don't trust that you're going to, you're going to pull it off. So that's where that line comes from. And then going into something with your eyes wide open is, is really just saying like, you can't avoid this. Life is happening to you. And, and like, we're all going to face a crisis at some point point in the other. And the most, I mean, recently with the pandemic, we all have some access point to a recent crisis. We all went through it together, a collective crisis. And so even that, like, When you go into a bad situation, but you feel prepared, even if it's just the illusion of preparedness, because you've just thought about it and you feel like, okay, no matter what I do, I know how to not feel regret on the other end. So it it takes the sting out of whatever scary decision you have to make. And that's what going into it with Eyes Wide Open is, is just making sure that you are preparing yourself, that even a bad outcome could happen, but how can you make decisions knowing that that might happen and not blame yourself for it later on?
0: I love this idea of the illusion of control or influence that it, even if I can't dictate exactly what's going to happen, I know that I have this tool in my back pocket that can't guarantee the outcome, but it can guarantee that I know I will have made the best decision given all of the circumstances, many of which are out of my control. One thing that I just, we talked to Liz Sheik from the New School of Finance Oh, my goodness, we love her. Um, Having to sit back and hear from a certified financial planner, life happens. It doesn't have to be your fault. We're not pointing fingers. It took away all of the judgment.
1: Yeah. I think people judge themselves and people judge other people. Like, you know, something bad, a a really good example of that right now that I'm hearing that just grinds my gears is, um, you know, okay, so we're in a place where interest rates are real high. And a lot of people bought houses or refinanced in during the pandemic. So everyone's making those decisions in crisis. Let's just uh, put that out there. And um, at the time, you know, the Bank of Canada was like, we won't raise rates on y'all. And then, like, here we are. And so were those people – should those people beat themselves up forever? Were they dumb with money? No. They made it – they talked to their, their mortgage broker. They talked to their, their other person, all these experts. And it seemed like at the time the rates were, like, 1.7% that seems like a great idea. And now it's one of those things that you could look back and say, that was a good decision at the time with a bad outcome. Great. Or you can look back and say that you're terrible with money or that someone screwed you. So it's like, you get to like, that's the difference. Right. And I really feel like some other people put that shame on, on others. Like I had this client the other day who's like, dad is like nonstop. Like this old boomer guy is just like nonstop at him for like, see, that's why you should have locked in, you should have like, as if, as if it was some sort of like shame or his fault. And it just grinds my gears on that, you know, Ugh, I hate it.
0: Well, you also want to know that I made this decision, knowing all the things I gathered all my data. So when somebody else judges or puts that shame, on, it's like, trust me, if I knew, I might have made a different decision. But you can't predict all of these things. I think you're one of us, one of us in like, keep your eyes open. Let's weigh what this looks like. And that kind of brings me to one of our questions. As much as we we live in a world of of uncertainty, and I would say that, that the pandemic is still something that we are, of course, thinking about and forever has changed our lives. We also exist in a world of cliches right? You only live once. Things happen for a reason. Trust the universe. There's a lot of that happening. And sometimes it seems like it would be easier if we could just throw caution to the wind and kind of say, fuck it, cross our fingers, hope for the best with every decision we make. Tell me why the playbook that is included in no regret decisions, making decisions with our eyes open are essential to eliminating that regret.
1: So, well, I think, you know, we don't want to feel regret because I don't think people, unless you felt it deeply, I don't know that you might give it um, the its due as far as how it robs you of your confidence and keeps you up at night. So if, you, you've, if you've been a person who's just like fl- flying by the seat of their pants normally and things are working out, awesome, that's great, I'm so happy for you. And hopefully you never feel the sting of a bad decision or the sting of a good decision with a bad outcome. Really, because that's what we're talking about. So that might come down the road or it may not. I think the playbook is there for people who feel overwhelmed with decisions So it's also a way to pare down options. Um, Like uh, I think I call it like decision tree bonsai, right? So it's like a really methodical way to take, like I have a a lot of my own, my friends right now in my life are like, is this it? Is this what I'm doing for the next 20 years? I've been working now for 15 to 20 years. I got another 15 to 20 years ahead of me like, is this it? And it's like that in itself is an existential crisis that the playbook can help with. And there's no stakes that are happening besides emotional, which are, you know, those are huge stakes, but no one's pulled the rug out from underneath you, so to speak. But you're still, you have a vast, you know, decision-making in front of you. So I feel like the playbook can help with that. And it also, if you've read it, I had another a reader um, write me and say that, you know, she's like, I was flipping through it in the beginning and it was really good. And she was like, but I kept being like, I'm not in crisis, so I, I don't feel like I should be reading this book. I feel like, <clears throat> you know, at first I was kind of like, maybe I'll put this book down and I'll use it at, for a time in my life when I feel like my life is on fire. Because the first bit of the book is a lot about getting out of panic mode. And so if you're not physically in panic mode, then is this book helpful for me? And then she told me that the, the anecdotes were like funny and, and entertaining enough that she was like, I'm going I'm to keep reading just like, even though at the first bit of the book felt like, you know, I'm not in crisis right now. And this will be really helpful down the road. And then as she got through the rest of it, she had said, I feel so much better about, about just like facing life like head on, because even though I'm not in crisis right now, I feel like if if and when something happens to me, I feel really prepared for for what I'm supposed to do. And it also made me look back and reflect on my life and some of the decisions I made that were in panic mode. And I got lucky. I just got lucky and I always put it down to like, I'm so, I made that decision. I flew by the, I'm so good. And then she's like, no, you know what? I had no idea. It was a complete reactionary thing and it was made out of fear. And I just got lucky that it didn't pan out the bad way. And so it also gave me a lot of grace for, you know, myself and for others that are, are maybe haven't been as lucky as me. And she was like, so thank you for that. And I've, I've, I never thought that that would be, you know, an outcome from it that somebody, would read it and look back at their life and be like, wow, I really, I got lucky. And that gives me empathy for others and more empathy and grace for myself going forward. So that was really cool. You know?
0: I love that perspective because I also, I mean, I started reading the book knowing that we were going to have this interview and I was like, Oh, I, I don't think I'm in crisis. And yet I'm on the cusp of making some big decisions, some life decisions, which I'm not ready to share on the podcast, but Things that I have to figure out in my life. So when we're making decisions, when we aren't in crisis, are there particular elements of the playbook that you think we can skip or where we should start? Or do you think it's worthwhile looking through the whole process? And we will dig into the process.
1: I think the process, and here's why. There might be like one chapter that's like really about people that just got the rug pulled out for them. That's the chapter where it's like making micro timelines and micro goals where it's like it's like, you know, someone's partner just said, like, I'm going to divorce you. And it's like, let's take this three days at a time, you know, um, or you've just been diagnosed with a critical illness or like something's happened to you and you didn't know what's going on versus everything else. But the other stuff in the panic mode chapters where it's like, um, you know, creating a circle of care. This is one of the tactics. I think if you're making decisions like, like, let's say that my friend who is, is on the precipice of like, is this my, is this it? Is this my life? You know what I mean? surrounding yourself by with people who are in the same situation as you who can talk about it in a way that feels real so that you're not just talking to the people you know her talking to someone who's a lifelong teacher with a pension is not going to have the same input fears and anxieties as someone who's been an entrepreneur for 10 years has no pension has been busting it doing their own taxes like it's not the same and so speaking to someone in a circle of mindfully and actively creating a circle of care to help you around this decision time in your life I think is good advice, whether you're in crisis or not. I think that's solid. So I feel like it's just that one or two chapters in the beginning. That's like making sure you're not taking it in panic mode. But even at that, when we're in these moments too, where we're like thinking about our life and we have big decisions to make, I still think you may not think you're in crisis that you, sorry, you may not be in crisis, but you might still be making a scarcity based decision or a reactionary decision. And so I still think that ensuring that you're not doing that is really helpful.
0: When I first read The Circle of Care, it felt counterintuitive. It It took me reading the whole chapter to go, oh, now I get it. And especially with the case study where this is a woman who has stepchildren and the, she's not fully integrated, but he died. And what do we do with the will? And and this sort of complex situation. So the reason it felt counterintuitive is because we live in a place where we're trying to gather different perspectives. Part of having compassion and empathy for people is to be around people who don't look like you, who don't do the same things as you, who have different jobs and lifestyles and, and barriers so that we can be more understanding of the the people that are around us. And so I read the circle of care and I went, oh, okay. So now I want to be around people who are just like me. And I realized that the purpose of the circle of care is not to shrink your circle for the rest of your life. It's to shrink your circle and surround yourself with people who truly live it and get it so that we can stop the comparison. We can like reduce some of the judgment and shame because yeah, my life is very different than somebody who has worked at the same job and has a pension for 20 years.
1: Hmm. And I think totally. And it's not the, it's not that you replace your support group with your, with your people. It's that you craft and create specifically around this decision. And that doesn't speak to, uh, age, race, socio-demographic, nothing. It actually is like anyone who's been through this decision process who can actively, who's just been through it or is actively living it can provide a sounding board too, where I feel like, of course, you're going to tell your other pals what's going on. But so the the great example I have there too is like, um, and this is my, in my own personal life, one of my friends is going through a divorce right now. And she has, you know, formed like a side group chat with a bunch of other, um, women who she knows who are also going through it because in our little group chat, everyone's like, well, we're happily married. Yeah. And she just was like, I just need to vent for 10,000 hours about this one text message for my ex. And I just need to do that in a place where someone's like, I super get why you need to look at this for five hours. Let's talk about it again and again and again. And it doesn't mean that we're not supportive and it doesn't mean that we're not her people, but it's that like, um, that, that one step down, For this for this particular time in your life, when you're going through something and you you want to feel understood on a base level, like on a primal level, you want to feel understood.
0: I think I have underestimated the value of the circle of care. And then as as you're talking, I'm thinking about the side chat that is called friends that are moms. And I go, oh, so when I need to figure out a travel crib, I'm going to go to this group instead of to to Liz and Danielle, who are my nearest and dearest and love me and Probably don't know anything about travel cribs. No offense, Liz. Yeah, I don't think you even want to have that conversation. It's really fucking boring. Um, but it, it's finding the people for that right situation. Now, when we are in crisis, the first chapter is about establishing sixty percent normal. Can you tell me what sixty percent normal means and what it does to help keep us out of regret land?
1: Yeah, I think this is um like a the book that like the decisions that we're talking about in this book are like, high emotional stakes and high financial stakes. So when I say high emotional stakes, it's like your life does not look the same the next day. Like you quit your job on Tuesday, your life is different on Wednesday. You get diagnosed on Wednesday, your life is different on Thursday. We're talking about life altering decisions that you're making. And so that's the stakes. That's why it feels high. We're not not talking about like whether or not you're going to order a pizza on Friday and blow the budget. That's not the concept here. And so, um, just like getting, so when you make a decision that has that level of sh- life shifting, even if your life is the same, as far as you wake up in the morning in the same house, your routine is shot. Everything that you were supposed to do is just blown up. And even if it was your choice, even if you quit your job, even if you just retired, even if you just found out you were pregnant. All of these things are like, my life is different as of now. And so your routine is going to completely change. Like getting pregnant is a big one too, right? You pee on a stick. It's like, well, they're okay. I have to rethink everything that goes into my mouth. I have to rethink a lot of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm immediately tomorrow. And so when you're, we're creatures of habits as, as human beings. And we all have these, um, routine, we call them routines, but some of them are, are like, all, like, um, they, they're so automatic, we don't even think about them. So for example, like have you ever like, commuted to work and then you get there and you're like, I don't, even remember. I don't even remember getting here. It's because you do it so many times that you don't even have to make decisions anymore to do it. So when your routines like that get disrupted, everything that you're doing takes up bandwidth in your brain. Because if before it was kind of automatic, the alarm clock goes off, I snooze it twice, I get up, I go to the shower, I wash my hair, I brush my teeth, I make the coffee, I get in the car and then go to work and I do this, that all happens without any sort of decision making. Now, if you don't have a job the next day, you wake up and it's like, do I snooze the alarm or not? Do I set the alarm? Can I have coffee first? Do I stay in my pajamas? What? Do I shower now or later? Do I watch a show? Do I scroll in my bed for five hours? Like all of that is like a new decision. So we only have so much willpower and bandwidth to make decisions. You've heard of like decision fatigue. So essentially getting to 60% normal, when something happens in your life looks different right away and your routines are blown up. One of those self care acts that you can do for yourself to like chill your chill out is thinking mindfully about some of those routines and that you used to do kind of automatically in your previous version of your life and mindfully select the ones that you, that made you feel safe and cozy, and happy. Even if it was as boring as like, get up, like snooze the alarm, get up, get in the shower, get dressed, make the coffee. These kinds of things, almost you turn a routine into a ritual in your new version of your life, because you put emotional meaning behind it. And that ritual of your former life, A, stops you from having as much decision fatigue because you kind of solved for a lot of the things you kind of kept the routine going or whatever. So there's a lot of normalcy that's created. So your brain doesn't have to overthink it. And so you can make some bandwidth for bigger decisions that are coming your way. And two uh, are also like self-soothing because now they're rituals that remind you that you're you in this new life. And so I feel like, you know, the pandemic, a lot of people did that as well. I, I have I remember having like active conversations with people you know, because we were in lockdown, you're inside, like maybe you're working, maybe you're not, maybe you're in remote for the first time. Like everything about your life is new. Maybe your kids are home for the first time and you've never worked in front of them. And this is like all new. So it's like looking back into like four days ago before they declared this a pandemic, like what were some of the things in your life, minuscule things in the day, in the afternoon, in the evening and on the weekend, it's really easy to break them up in those four categories, little routines that you did that brought you some comfort, that brought you joy, that didn't take up a lot of bandwidth. Let's mindfully reach through time and bring them forward and make them a ritual in your new life.
0: I like that it's not just taking all of these routines that we had and slapping them all into your new life. It's like, no, no, let's pick and choose the great ones. So, yeah, you know, maybe getting up in the morning and and hitting snooze twice and taking a shower and getting dressed and making coffee. That was my old routine. You know what? I actually don't want to get dressed I want to wear my pajamas, but I'm still going to get up. I'm going to take a shower and I'm going to put on new pajamas for that day. I'm still going to make the coffee. So I love that, that it kind of gets us into picking and choosing what matters. And that, I mean, the, the idea of picking and choosing leads me into a conversation about values, which we are familiar and perhaps even tired of talking about values And I don't mean we as in me and Liz. I mean, just collectively, everyone and their dog has a values exercise. We have one. We talk about it. Yours is different. So we've talked about personal values. We've talked about brand values. And you bring this new perspective to the table, which is about deciding values. No, I'm shamelessly going to ask you to help me through this. I want to understand what deciding values are. And how you help people find them because it's not as easy as circling five words on a piece of paper and making sentences. That's great. And it's not the full thing. So hit me with deciding values.
1: So deciding values are simply some of those core values that we all have, which is the like, hey, look at a piece of paper and circle your top five. And, and here's the perspective of values. Like I remember when I was doing my life coach certification, I remember being like, oh my God, you talk to me about values one more time. I'm going to (laughs) like, I'm going to freak out. And, and it's, it gets annoying. And I think it's because, it's kind of like in the, in the health industry, everyone's like exercise and it's like values. It's like, it's, we hear it over and over and it's, it's like, okay, because it really fucking matters, but why does it matter, I think, is more the, the important thing. And so when I'm talking to someone about their deciding values, this has been one of the key things that I actually shoehorned this into the decision playbook, like later, not, not while I was writing it, before I was writing it, but I realized when I was talking to some of those people who made a decision, or, or sorry, who had regret, deep regret. So not the people who were like, good decision, bad outcome. The ones who were like, I screwed up and i would be like why do you think that what's happening and one of the things i would do with them to try to make peace with what happened back you know like what the ha- what they why they chose the thing that they do is i would say the same thing over and over. it was funny like listening to myself in my own earbuds being like why are you just repeating yourself again and again. so um i would be like there must have been a reason that you made this decision at the time. so like let's go back in time and think about it and often Not just the like, well, my person told me this and the research did this and the everyone else, not those external things. I'm often looking for that, that like, why did you make this decision? So like all these opinions were there and you chose it. What was, what was going on? And often they'll say something like, well, at the time I was trying to protect my family or at the time I thought it was the financially stable thing to do. At the time I, I, I thought, you know, that I was, I was like being ambitious. I thought this, I thought this. So often there's a value there at that time in their life that they were sort of upholding. And then that's why they chose to choose to follow the information that they were given. So once you say that to someone, often it's the key to having them not not beat themselves up as much. Because at the time, there was some value that was important to you. and, And you chose that. You weren't just like shooting darts at a board. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a reason you did this. And so what I realized is that, okay, well that's for people who've already made the decision and regret it. What if we could do this before the decision was made? What if we could make someone consciously and mindfully think about what value you're going to hang your hat on for this decision? And that's the difference between a core value and a deciding value. A core value is kind of like, I think they shift and change over time. It's kind of like what makes us us, but like my values when I was 25 is not the same as it now at 38, not even close. They're all still there, but I, they're reprioritized, right? And so I think sometimes we get caught up on like, these are my, decided, these are my values and that's that. And it's like, no, at some point, this, this value takes a front seat in my life and the other ones take a back seat or whatever. And so during someone's decision playbook or crisis or whatever you want to call it, if they're making big decisions, mindfully going through and saying, okay, these five to 10 values really reflect who I am like as a whole, but for this decision specifically, I'm going to put this one first so that if I look back and say, why did I make this decision? I will remember that it was like, oh, right, I prioritized financial security over, you know, um, my need for joy, travel and adventure. Great. Okay. Or I made the decision... At the time, because I prioritized my need for travel and adventure over financial security. So everybody gets to choose. And it doesn't mean that that's it for life. It just means for this decision. And that's why it's called a deciding value. And it's just for one choice at a time. And you get to flip that priority around a thousand times in your life.
0: It just adds such a depth to core values. I know I, have, I had a baby a year and a bit ago i keep saying i have a baby i call apparently she's a toddler i refuse to accept this she is an older baby and i've had a really hard time accepting a change in values accepting a reprioritization because i have hung my hat on being fiercely ambitious i'm fascinated by it i want to study it all of those things Yeah, I knew you were my people. And yet some of my decisions have to change. Now, one thing that we have talked about on the podcast before, I know I talk about with with my clients, is thinking about the worst case scenario and how incredibly powerful it can be. The way that I use the worst case scenario is because I say, we're actually going to go there. Let's talk it out. Is your worst case scenario being completely destitute? In a lot of cases, it's not. But even if it is, then we can talk through it, and I become the annoying three-year-old that says, okay, and then what? And then what? And then what? And we do that over and over until we realize you could get yourself out of this hole. Now, there's a sentence in your book that just stopped me in my tracks, and I've had to read through it, and I wrote, talk through this in my book on page 121, because I'm sure you know every single line by heart. (laughs) <laughs> it says most times the core values being violated in our worst case scenario reflect the core values being upheld in our best case scenario tell me more about how use it, how we can use the best and worst case scenario to help us figure out these deciding values
1: so this happened from all of my money years this is not a life coaching practice um I don't think a lot of life coaches go to the worst case scenario in any of my training. It was always visualizing your future self and like, like going towards that, that positive best manifestation of your best self, right? In my financial planning practice, a lot of times I'm like damage control, worst case scenario. It's a lot of like that piece, right? And and that's because people are often worried about like the money part. And that's actually how I wind up in these intense life conversations with people because that's the money, right? How long until we can stop or how long and how long do we go and can we afford to? And so what I started to notice when I was doing a financial worst case scenario for people is that like what made it the worst case scenario often wasn't even about the money because what I would do is say like, okay, so you've given this up, what then? What then? Same as you, but in the worst case scenario, and and with the money stuff. And often, what you're hearing when you ask someone like, "What happens if you hit this line?" is like, "Okay, well, it's not about the losing eighty thousand dollars. It's about the fact that I like, I um, I can't set, I can't help my kids one day. Okay." that's a value around family and home, right? Like that's not really about 80 grand. It could be 8,000 or a million dollars. It's not really about the dollar value. It's about the fact that now you can't help your family member out. Other things are like, um, you know, wanting to help parents who are aging and like feeling like a failure. or Like, like there's a whole lot of other things that are going on. And I've, I've, I reach that sometimes with people and I point it out because sometimes it also takes the sting out of the, out of the dollar value. Because, so for example, on the flip side of things, let's say that we're talking about someone, they're like, I just want to make a hundred grand. Okay, that's a dollar amount, right? I'm like, what is that $100,000 meaning? Well, it actually means I could pay my rent without freaking out every month. Well, it means I could could get a better phone plan. It means that I could put my kid into this program that I really want to put them into. Well, so none of that stuff is about a $100,000. And because if they had the same utilization, like if their life, if they could do all the things they want to do on 60 grand, I think it'd be fine. You know what I mean? But it's like, it's like this, it's what do you want to actually do with that? And so that's how I realized that the worst case scenario often reflects the values that we're most afraid of not being upheld on the other side of our life crisis, right? So living a daily life that doesn't reflect the things that are most important to us.
0: I have like weepy tears and also goosebumps going, okay, when this call is over, I need to sit down and I need to talk through this best case and worst case scenario in, in the decision making that I'm doing. Um, I, this is not a surprise to any of our listeners, Shannon. This won't be a surprise to you given the last half hour of our conversation. And of course, Liz has heard me talk about this for ages. One of my core values is around ambition. I want big things, I want to have a major impact, and I want to do that through getting a deeper understanding of how ambition works and sharing ideas on big stages with tens of thousands of people. This is something that feels so true to my core. How do you think decision-making is different, if at all, for highly ambitious people, knowing that you are nodding your head going, yep, I'm in that same boat?
1: So for me, I feel like, you know, I really identified as being like a super ambitious person my whole life. I still am. I still feel like I'm doing that. Um, and I almost break it down into like micro micro decisions. So, and and this is when I would say, instead of getting overwhelmed by how many ways this could go, it's like, okay, if I make a decision to, um, you know, I take on another book, for example, let's just say, okay. And I take, do I do this? What, what am I sacrificing to do this? Okay, because my initial reaction is like, I want to do it. So okay, let's think that through. What is my worst case scenario here? Is my worst case scenario, never being home for my kids, missing drop off, doing the things that are important to me? Or is my worst case scenario here, not doing a book, and then feeling like I regretted that? So like, which one is my worst case scenario here? And often, whatever feels the most icky is, is often like the one that feels like, okay, well, what value is the flip side of that? Right. So if maybe I'm like, okay, well then what, if it's, if it's not doing the book and feeling like I should have done that and I had something to say and I, I, I missed an opportunity, which for me is a big fear, right? Missing an opportunity to do something, um, important, important, then it's like, okay, so if I miss that opportunity what what next what what, what value was I upholding and all, what was I able to do and often it's just that kind of like balance and back and forth and so there have been plenty of decisions in the last few years since I've had kids and covid where I have said no to something that like previous Shannon would have been all over in the name of like boundaries and balance really um, because the worst case scenario in those situations was actually, you know, violating the family stuff or violating my own self care and that kind of thing. And then there's also been decisions where the opportunity was so good that it, it was flipped, right? So the opportunity, that, that it, it, it actually was the, the regret of not would be so big that I would be resentful. And so I really think that it comes down to, and again, this is kind of tied to that deciding value thing. There's no sweeping statement here. You got to take every single decision in your life and really think about, okay, in this case, which one am I upholding and which one am I prioritizing? And it may not be the same for a decision that comes your way next week. And and the permission you have to give yourself to do that does not mean you're not being true to yourself, and that is a huge lesson that I've learned because I spent so much of my life like I was like scaling a lemonade stand, you know what I mean? Like I I was I'm like so intense, I like I can't be stopped, and so I I, I really the adjustment that there are situations where I would not prioritize. Growth or ambition or whatever you want to call it, and, and, and take, have that that core value take a backseat was unsettling to me at first because I felt like I was lo- losing a piece of my identity. And what I actually have learned through actually talking to all, all of the people, the work that I do with others, I'm like, well, apply it to yourself, Jan. like take your own friggin' medicine, um, is basically like, no, these, these, and this comes with, I think, age too, right? Like, I, again, I don't think I could have written this book 10 years ago. It's like permission to allow those core values to shift and flow over depending on what's in front of you and, and they're all part of you and they don't have to always be front and center. Some of them can take a back seat sometimes, whether, even if that's like the family stuff and some of them can take a, a front seat depending on wh- where you're at. And as long as you're proud of which one you chose, then no matter what happens on the other end, you're going to be fine with the decision you made
0: taking it away from the actual outcome. Because I know I have moments where there are opportunities that I have that mean I'm going to miss bedtime with my kid. It means I might miss a first of her doing something. And there's times where that's okay. And that might not be okay for someone else. Someone else will put all of their, their career ambitions on hold so that they see every single thing with their kid. And that's just not my value. So there's also a big sense of relief here going, I'm the only one who can decide these for where I'm at in my life right now.
1: Yep. Not only what the values are, but the order in which they appear in your life or decision by decision by decision is completely personal and not comparable to others. And it's what's good for you is not good for the gander, you know? No, it's, it's all personal.
0: Do you keep this? This might be a personal question. Do you keep your values, I imagine them like magnet tiles on your fridge where you're like, all right, here's the five. And I pull this one off and this one's moved up to number one. Like, do you have sort of a, a like Shannon's values manifesto or the Simmons family something or recommend it for your clients?
1: So so I don't have it lifted. I journal a lot. And I think that writing is the way that I work through my shit. And so You know, I've done a lot of self-work and self-discovery over my life, just like being in the coaching world and doing financial planning and seeing people's lives play out. And so I'm really keenly aware of the ones that constantly crop up for me. How about that? So I don't necessarily have them written up, but I will say this. When I make decisions that feel like I can't just like intuitively pull through those, you know what I mean? Like the bigger decisions in my life, like for example, this book, this book was really hard for me to write. And I tried to quit this book four times, four times. And Harper Collins was so lovely. And they're just like, get it to us when you can. This is a crisis we understand. And I was like, I felt like Chandler trying to quit the, the gym. I was like, I can't, I can't quit the gym. And so um, I, and, the re- and so it actually was a panic-based decision that wasn't upholding my values. I was completely making a panic-based reactionary decision because I had uh, an actual baby, a six-month-old baby and a two-year-old um, at home during lockdown, trying to finish a book in four months and tax season and run a business and do all the things. And, you know, I, am um, as a person who's normally used to like achieving a lot and managing with a smile on my face, I like completely came undone. I just like was fucked. I was like totally fucked. And I, I was writing like emails to my agent at like two in the morning quitting. This is not, this is a panic based decision. And so I I just something had to give and I did, I was so overwhelmed that I just I had to like, do that. And so I think the point that I'm making is like, um, the, what I ended up why I ended up finishing the book is because ultimately, I had to sit down and and like, write it out. And so when you ask me, like, do you have like a list of your values listed? Like, when the stakes for me are really high, like something like that, where it's like, I'm going to ba- I'm going to piece out of a book contract, a book that I am so excited about writing, um, because I'm so scared right now that I don't know what to expect tomorrow. So I just can't even, my brain can't even like comprehend sitting down, like writing a book. Um, it was like, okay, like what's the better decision long-term for you? And I constantly had to think about like future Shannon, like, okay. In like 2024, what are you going to think about this moment right now? Are you gonna Are you gonna look back at this and be like, "You made the right choice for your family," which is what I was saying, right? My, fa- I'm, I'm, my family needs me, and which was true. And I cannot do this. It's I I, I cannot do this. And so, or are you going to look back and be like, "You, you like could like you 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 should have figured it out. Like you should have done it or figured a way to, through it." And so I, it really was that uh, between like my family needs me and my other personal identity around being excited about p- putting something out into the world that I'd worked really hard at and that whole part of me. And um, eventually what happened was I realized that like long term, I would look back and think, you shouldn't have quit. I know that. I knew that. Even then I was like, you're going to look back at this with regret. This is not the deciding value. That you should hang your hat on. This is not it. So, like, find a fucking solution, find it. And so, at least with that, I was able to say, like, I'm gonna do this. I don't know how it's gonna look, but like, I'm gonna do it. And hopefully, I don't quit again. And then I did it three more times. (laughs) I think at that point, my agent was like, oh, here's another panic email from Shannon. But like, it was a weird time. Um, And I got through it with like a series of extensions. And my team at New School of Finance was, actually and um they they I couldn't have done it without them because they knew that I was like I was like unhinged I was like like like, crying on team calls I was a complete crazy and they were like why don't you go be with your family for a bit we got it we got it we already canceled everything and moved like we got it and you just like just go be in the woods with your kids for like six weeks just bye they're like please don't rage quit your business cool like like cool so I did that and I just took six weeks off of new school completely and I lived, I moved uh, up to the woods with my kids and I wrote furiously and just mommed hard and that for, some, that worked as the solution for me feeling like I didn't have so many balls that I had to, so it was actually new school that had to take the back seat, which didn't even friggin' occur to me. It was like book or babies. That's your options. That's, and that is panic mode, right? Book or babies no other choice. You choose others. You're a bad mom.
0: Yes. And it's this, again, the black and white of like, I can do this or I can do this. And there's no, I I joke that when I go to therapy, I pay for the gray. I pay for somebody else to help me realize that there's all these little decisions. And and you use the language of like pivot points that I can hit this one and I can change my mind. But mapping out what actually matters at this moment knowing that I can change my mind can release so much of that pressure and just kind of let some air out of the tires for a second. Like my tires are always like jacked. And there's some moments where I just need to pull it back. Liz knows that in March, I had a, a similar rage quit my business where I'm like, I think I'm done. And she's like, oh, okay, you're done with with the podcast. I'm like, I'm done with all of it. And my friend beautifully said to me, In Edmonton. Now, Shannon, I don't know if you've been to Edmonton, um, but in in Ontario is similar. She said, you're not allowed to make these big decisions in March and April in the weather that we have in Edmonton. She said, May 1st, you can burn it to the ground, but not in March and April. (laughs) And so, I I mean, that was another one of those. Okay, I can actually take some time. And so I want to talk to you about time guardrails and money guardrails. You describe these as the things that kind of keep us out of the ditches and that until we get to those things, we have space to move. How do you help people establish what those guardrails are?
1: Okay, so time and money guardrails. So this comes back to financial planning, right? This is more my financial planning background that I do with people, is It's like realistic. Reality. Reality sucks. Great. Let's manifest forever. Things cost money and things take time. We can't ignore them. We can we can dream our best case till the cows come home. And at some point, we're going to run out of time. And at some point, we're going to run out of money. So um, a lot of why, again, I'm in these conversations is to map out where those money points are. A pivot point to me. And I'll use an example to explain it. Um, is basically where it's a point in your life or a point in your decision tree, if you will, or your playbook, where um, your best case scenario is still possible, but something's got to give. Okay, you cannot have so it's like almost like plan, it's like Plan B, but there's still a plan. It's just Plan B. So for example, everyone can relate to this. Let's say you're first time home buyer, and someone comes in and sees me, and they're like, "We want to buy a house, and we want to make sure that we can put our kids in extracurricular, and we want to make sure that." Um, we can uh, afford a family vacation every year and, like, not str- not be house poor. Cool. We work it out. I'm like, the mortgage that you can afford as a family is $600,000. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. They've got $200,000 down. We're talking $800,000 house. Great. They go off, they've mapped it out, blah, blah, blah. Then if we haven't done the, the work I'm about to do, it gets really sticky when there's a bidding war. So what I also do for people before they head out into the world is is I'm like, what happens if you find the $800,000 house or you don't? And and all of a sudden it's a $900,000 house, which means you have a $700,000 mortgage. Okay, they can still, the bank will still underwrite the risk. So it's still possible, but there's no family vacations. You can still keep your kids in extracurricular. You can still uh, not be house poor, but bye-bye family vacations. You either have to earn more money or like staycations.com. So that's a pivot point you're still buying the house. You're still not house poor. There's a lot of things that are still going. And if your value is to buy a home and that's like upholding your va- your values, cool. We just had to switch something else in your life. Okay. What happens if the bidding war takes it to a million dollars and now the mortgage is 800,000? Okay. Bank will still give you a mortgage. So it's still possible, but there's no extracurricular. There's no travel. And you're like, you're your money in, money out, but technically you're still affordable On my, thought, as long as you're okay with never putting your kids in extracurricular or travel. And last but not least, if it goes over that million and you need the mortgage to be up at like $900,000, well, A, the bank may not give it to you, and B, let's say that the bank would give it to you, but you'd be completely house poor. That's a hard no. So where sometimes a guardrail, that's the guardrail. So $700,000 mortgage, pivot point. $800,000 mortgage, pivot point. $900 plus, guardrail. So whether the bank is saying no, that somebody else has put that guardrail on you, or you're like, my life would be so shit that I refuse to do that to myself. That's a guardrail. And so that's how the two interact with each other. Pivot points are, that sucks, but I'm going to still go and I'll give something else up. And a guardrail is like, I've run out of time. I've run out of money. I'm done.
0: In the beginning of the book, you tell the story about almost quitting four times. And we had this, a similar conversation with Liz Sheik from New School, where we went, oh, financial planners are humans and financial planners don't just magically have millions of dollars in their backyard and see my bank account and go, Oh, she fucked up. Like you're not judging every single time I eat at Wendy's. I don't know. Let's use that as an example that, that we are humans first and your book beautifully lets us into some of the stories of other people, which not only normalizes prices, but normalizes that we all face decisions of different, different degrees, different, like varying degrees of seriousness and life or death. And, and so I think that there's, there's a lot of comfort in that. You talked about decision fatigue. We of course all know what it is. Is there a way to eliminate decision fatigue or cope with decision fatigue?
1: I mean, for me, I think that the main thing is like that 60% normal tactic that we were chatting about earlier, where it's like, you just kind of take so much of the guesswork out of your daily life out um, so that you make sure that you're saving that bandwidth for those big decisions. Um, Almost like, you know, like Obama wore the same thing and ate the same thing for breakfast or it is like, yeah, because there's big decisions that you have to make and you don't want to run out of, out of gas, so to speak. So I think that's one of the most effective ways when your life gets turned upside down um, that you can do it. And also I do think that the whole playbook in general will help with decision fatigue because, Let's say that you're not necessarily in crisis. Like your life hasn't been turned upside down, but you're so tired of rattling around with this decision like over and over and over and over and over over again. It is a level of crisis almost. And why you want to make sure you're not making a reactionary or panic-based decision, you just want it to be over. You want the decision circulation to stop. You just want to land on a land somewhere, right? Like that also can be, sometimes we just choose something just to end the cycle. And I think sometimes going through that playbook it's helpful. And I actually think maybe one of the best ways to stop decision fatigue is to map out the pivot points and the guardrails that we just talked about, because at least you're, it's like it takes all the options from like a thousand to like four. When you start bringing money in and time it gets real and it takes it from this like ideas world into your life and what's realistic time wise and financially. And often that will just chop the options right in half.
0: For sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, eliminating all the options that are there as somebody who has considered, I've been eating the same breakfast every morning for the last two weeks going, I can't make this decision every morning. So here it is. Eliminating some of those big ones is is a huge piece. Um, I am conscious of our time. So I just, I want to make sure that, that we wrap up. I do want to ask this question though. One of your clients uh, in one of the case studies in your book talks about the period after making this decision and described it as a decision crisis hangover. I will tell you that this is one of the, the case studies that made me cry for anybody who is listening. Uh, just wait for the word melody. When you hear the word melody, you will weep. Uh, I Besides a typical hangover cure of blackout curtains, mm-hmm. television reruns, and McDonald's fries, what is the decision crisis hangover and how do we get over it?
1: Yeah, we kind of touched on this earlier, but it really is. It's, it's a love letter to people who have regret, right, who made decisions that they look back on and they're like, I fucked up. Like, I, I don't like my life right now. And it's and I did because I did the wrong thing. And I wish I could go back in time and do differently. That is the person that has a decision crisis hangover. So it would be like, if I never finished the book, right, I would look back always and be like, damn, wish I could go back and do that. And so so someone who's made a decision, it didn't play out, and they they think that they should have done things differently. It wasn't a good decision with a bad outcome. It was just a straight-up decision they regret. Um, that's the hangover. And so and that's my favorite, one of my favorite stories, too. And you know, I, I actually get, like, reclammed when I was, like, listening to our stories. I would be, like, bawling, also in crisis, like, Whoa! Um, And so uh, one of the things that I think was so key is that going back in time and kind of outlining you know why did you make these decisions at the time and what were those dis- those core values and what was the priority of the deciding values at the time so even if you even if you know that like yeah you might have done things differently if you had known how things were going to play out can you give yourself some grace because the acknowledgement that you did the best you could at the time and that you really thought that upholding this value over this one was the right decision. You really believed that that was what you were trying to do at the time, but maybe you were just not doing it mindfully. So it was like by it accidentally happened. Um, but now you can go back and grant yourself some grace because we can change the past, right? We can just change our perspective and reframe it. So essentially dealing with regret is just essentially reframing it in your brain and, and giving yourself permission to have made the decision that you made and then it can help us create peace with the situation that's going on right now. And, and really allowing us to understand that, like, just because we did that then does not mean we're going to do it again. It is not guaranteed. That is a one-time thing that happened to you in a time of extreme whatever and is not guaranteed to happen again. You're in charge next time. So that's what that chapter is all about.
0: Shannon, thank you so much. I want to go and make some decisions. I want to, I I will tell you that as I went through the book and I'm I'm 50 50 on this sometimes I do the worksheet sometimes I don't I went through like I have a decision matrix around a couple of things I'm working on and I'm sitting down I'm writing my best case scenario worst case scenario. this book is incredibly helpful crisis or not. So I mean thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being here. My final thing always every single guest we have. I say, come with an ask. The language we use around here is don't ask, don't get. And I believe that we can get more if we're simply willing to be intentional about what we want and ask for it. So Shannon, what would you like to ask us or our audience for?
1: Um, I think if you like this podcast, go buy the book. That's the big ask. It's a great book. And, um, and I'd, love, I'd love everyone to read it. I think it would really help people feel calm. It is an
0: absolutely fantastic book. Absolutely go buy it. Um, If you have the opportunity, the means, buy it at your local bookshop. I have not yet had an experience where a local bookstore has said, no, I can't order that in for you. So absolutely take that time. Buy a copy. Read these case studies. It's also a wonderful audiobook. Uh, Shannon, you yourself read that, which, of course, I have questions about sitting down and reading a book for seven hours and how you did it. It's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you so very much. Shannon, how can we find you, hire you, visit you on the internet?
1: Everything is at newschooloffinance.com. You can find links to the books, the online courses, the the actual financial planning business that we do, uh, and like lots of free resources as well. So it's like, it's the, it's the home base.
0: Fantastic. We will, of course, link to that in the show notes. Shannon, thank you so much for being here. It has been an absolute delight.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Liz, part of me feels like we should just continue to talk to the cast of the New School of Finance because what incredible human beings these are between Liz Sheik, Shannon Lee Simmons, this book, and her entire suite of books is absolutely fantastic. That was a brilliant hour that we spent together brilliant she is amazing I love these new school of finance people let's just go to Toronto and hang out with them (laughs) you know what let's both yeah let's do it Liz let's book some plane tickets we need to go and hang out with these folks um because they are so cool they're so cool are we I wonder if anyone's podcasting anything like (laughs) Liz and Amanda are so cool I would like to think so like I mentioned on the podcast I'm over here trying to make some big decisions about my business and my life and what that looks like and doing some recalibrating to figure out what comes next. So I'm digging into my deciding values and it is definitely a lot easier to talk it out. So Liz, I know we've got some time booked in the calendar next week. Deciding values is going to be one of the topics of conversations. I can't wait to to help figure out exactly what that looks like. One thing that I know for sure is that it's always easier when you have another brain on it, especially someone in your circle of care who has compassion for you, understands your situation and may have been there yourself. So this conversation with Shannon has just reaffirmed how important uh, this relationship is. Oh, I didn't know I was just going to love on you so much. But how nice is that? Uh, Let's make some big decisions. If you, our listener, need support making big decisions for your ambitious life and business. uh, Number one go and buy no regret decisions. It is outstanding. It is a thoughtful read and a read that isn't scary. When we see finance book or decision-making book that can create a lot of intimidation. And I promise this is presented in, in such a hopeful and compassionate way. If you would like somebody to chat with about that, that's what I do. You can find me at theamandawagner.com or follow me at theamandawagner on Instagram. And I'm always here to be your sounding board to help make big decisions. And if you are in the midst of making some decisions about your business or you're looking for some support with your digital communications, your social media, any writing that goes on your website, I can help with that. Let's talk. You can visit my website, LizPittman.com, or visit me on Instagram at Liz Slide into my DMs and uh, let's have a chat. I'm just always so jacked after these interviews. It's like my husband's a musician and so at the end of his show, he says, you kind of get through the nervousness at the beginning and then you get to the end and you want to do it all over again. That's 100% how I feel right now. Thanks LP. I can't wait to talk more about this and let's make some decisions. I'm excited instead of scared. Excellent. Well, we will be back with another episode of the podcast. Episode 90 will be here in two weeks. And until then, we will see you on the internet. Liz, do you want to go to Toronto in real life? No baby. No travel crib. (laughs) She's not coming. (laughs) Love her and she stays home. Yeah, not allowed. Not allowed.